And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where I took a look at the X from outer space with the rather strange uh, space chicken monster Giala. Took a look at that with uh, Thomas DJ. A lot of fun. Uh, way to end out the year. Uh, but we're back. It's now uh, 2022. New year, new beginning. Uh, same old giant monsters. So uh, we are this episode, we're going to be taking a look at uh, some comics. And we're going to be taking a look at the Marvel comic series, The Rise of Ultraman, which introduced Ultraman uh, sort of uh, to Western readers. Obviously, there's been a few Ultraman comics before that, but a first from Marvel Comics. But before we get into that, we do have some news, and we actually have quite a bit of news, so we're going to go ahead and get right into it. Late-breaking news as I go to record this. Apple has greenlit a new MonsterVerse TV series. This is set to debut on their streaming platform, Apple TV, appropriately. The series is said to be set after Godzilla vs. Kong, and according to the press release, will feature Godzilla as well as other titans with the focus on a family with mysterious connections to the organization Monarch. I think everyone connected to Monarch has mysterious connections to him. I think that's been uh, kind of the theme so far. A series set to be produced by uh, co-creators Chris Black, who is one of the creators on Star Trek Enterprise, and noted Marvel Comics guy Matt Fraction. Uh, Fraction been in the news a lot lately. Um, the uh, Disney Plus series Hawkeye, largely based on his work on the Hawkeye series that he did. You know, there's been plenty of rumors about a MonsterVerse series pretty much since Godzilla vs. Kong came out. So I am glad to see some action on that front. And now supposedly we're also still getting an animated Kong series. I'm not sure what platform. I've heard Netflix, but I've seen that rumored elsewhere too. So... If the MonsterVerse uh, plan is to continue an episodic format rather than movies, I'm all right with that. Uh, you know, gives you, uh, you know, ability to tell longer stories or different types of stories than you can sometimes tell in a movie. And, uh, you know, if it works for them, I'm all in favor of it. More monsters works for me. Speaking of which, Godzilla vs. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers number 1 is in this month's uh, Previews magazine. This is a co-production from Boom and IDW, uh, who hold the uh, Power Rangers and Godzilla licenses, respectively, for comics. Solicitation is that Rita Repulsa uses an ancient artifact to put herself on another world, a world which happens to include Godzilla. Naturally, the Power Rangers are hot on her tail, and one has to assume that hijinks will ensue. Uh, I was a loyal uh, Power Rangers reader from Boom for several years, but I do have to admit the series kind of lost me after the huge Shatter Grid event. Uh, so it looks like Boom has figured out a way to get me back into the fold. Now, obviously, I am Team Godzilla. That goes without saying, right? Uh, I'm sure other people will fall other places along that line, but, you know, I know what side I'm on. Issue 1 is due out in comic shops here in the United States on March 23rd, and as I said, it is in previews this month if you'd like to pre-order it. So if you're interested, please contact your local comic shop. 
A new book, Godzilla, History of the Formative Arts, 1954 to 2016, is a massive, massive book featuring an archive of pictures and other visual material from the history of the Godzilla series. Uh, per Amazon, this clocks in at 528 pages. It's an oversized soft cover, which is noted as being bilingual in Japanese and English. Now, all that content doesn't come cheap, though. Book lists for $95 on Amazon. Still, it looks like a massive tome for Daikaiju fans to keep on their coffee tables. So, uh, very cool. We'll take a look at that. Hat tip to my brother Jason for passing this item along to me. Uh, in other reading news, Kaiju Ramen Magazine number four has been released. Uh, this issue of the Upstart Monster Fanzine features articles about Raymond Burr, a longtime personal favorite of mine, uh, Monsters from the Power Rangers series, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Godzilla and Animation, and more. You can check them out at kaijuramenmedia.com. Uh, physical copies of the new issue are sold out, but you still can grab a digital copy, so please check that out. Uh, great to have more outlets for Daikaiju fans to uh, express themselves and, and uh you know, uh, communicate with their fellow fans. So very cool. Uh, in independent monster news, the Great Buddha Arrival and Nezara 1964 have both been released from SRS Cinema. You you may recall we've talked about both of these uh, in the news section previously, uh, and, but they have been released. In fact, uh, they have begun shipping as well as of this recording. These two continue SRS's trend of releasing independent kaiju movies here in the West. And I've seen a lot of buzz about these online, especially Great Buddha Arrival, which, I mean, I've, I've just seen an a, a oversized amount of people interested in that title, uh, kind of relating similarly to how we saw with Howl from Beyond the Fog, that that got a lot of people interested. Definitely eager to watch them. Uh, you can find them at srscinema.com if you are interested. Um, I have not heard anything about them releasing the mass market DVDs like they've done with a lot of their films. I ordered the Blu-rays for both of them. Um, they they tended to have done the DVDs. Uh, they did that with Hell from Beyond Hell from Beyond the Fog, and they did that with the the Riga movies as well. But I haven't heard anything on those yet. So if we hear something, definitely pass that along. In Kawaii news, Kid Robot has pre-orders up for three-inch Ultraman mini vinyl toys, all of which are in a super deformed style. There are eight blind box figures in the line, and these consist of Ultraman himself, along with Mother of Ultra and Father of Ultra, who, of course, are not Ultraman's parents, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, and then the, uh, the enemies Balton, Dada, Eliking, Canagon, and Pigmon. Uh, these are estimated to ship in quarter two of this year, so that'll be uh, sometime after March, and they cost $14 a piece. You can head over to kidrobot.com if you want to check these out. Uh, these are very cute. I'm a little leery of blind boxes myself, but I know some people really like blind boxes and they do make good unboxing videos on YouTube if you're into that. Uh, hat tip to John Vanover for sharing this item with me. In online news, Ultraman 80, The Ultraman, Hyper Agent Gridman, and Kamen Rider 01 are all available for free streaming on Shout Factory TV. I suspect that this is at least partially connected to the physical releases of those Subaraya shows from Mill Creek not having digital copies. You'll recall that when Mill Creek was releasing the Ultra shows, uh, the first, I think, first year or so plus of those, they came with digital uh, copies for their service Movie Spree, which of course has since been scaled back significantly in the interim. But then Ultraman 80, 
the Ultraman and Gridman did not have them. Uh, so I'm thinking that maybe Mill Creek had lost the rights to digital streaming and Shout snapped them up. Maybe Shout negotiated those rights separately, what have you. The upside of all of this is that there is now plenty of new shows to stream for free. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's for, I mean, Common Rider Zero One, that Blu-ray from Shout has come out this month as well. Uh, but those um, three Subaraya shows, that's a lot of content there. And then you add in Common Rider Zero One, and they're all for free on Shout Factory TV. That's pretty cool. Now you can find Shout Factory TV either at their website, which is shoutfactorytv.com, uh, a subsite off the normal Shout Factory site, or you can get the app on iOS, Android, or Amazon, so you can stream on the device of your choice. So very cool. And finally, in other Ultra news, Ultra 7X, the complete series DVD, is up for pre-order from Mill Creek. Now this is the Heisei-era remake of Ultra 7, which ran for 12 episodes in 2007. Now I have seen this series via fans about 10 years ago. I remember really enjoying it. It's a bit more what we might call grim and gritty than we normally associate with Subaraya, but I think it did a really good job of exploring some really thoughtful themes about uh, isolation and alienation, uh, sort of a bleak chic motif. Uh, two disc set scheduled for release March 22nd. Pre-orders, as I said, are up on Amazon, so please go check that out. That's all I've got. If you have any news or information you'd like to pass along, why don't you go ahead and email me, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and I will uh, relay it here and give you all the credit for passing it along to me. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will get into the Marvel comic series Rise of Ultraman right here on Earth's Destruction Directive. Kenny, I'm starting a podcast. Recruit me and co-host with Attitude. Uh, what the heck? I thought we put that teleporter in storage. Uh, Michael? Next time you want me on Kaiju Weekly, tell Jimmy to... Drop the act, Nathan. This is not the Monster Island Film Vault. Okay, fine. But what's going on? I'm having you join me on The Power Trip, a journey through the Power Rangers franchise. It's a podcast version of the article series I'm writing for Kaiju Ramen Magazine. Oh, interesting. We'll spend a year analyzing the Power Rangers franchise, dedicating an episode to each season and movie. Ah, I see. So we'll be doing an overview and talking about them in broad strokes. Exactly. We'll discuss Ranger teams, the villains, the theme songs, and so much more. Can we give out fun awards for stuff like the best fight scene and the craziest moments like I do on Henshin Men? You bet. More phenomenal. When do we start? We drop episodes every two weeks starting Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. You know what that means, Michael. It's Morphin' Time. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Rise of Ultraman number one was released on September 9th, 2020 from Marvel Comics. The issue shipped with eight different covers, but the main cover was painted by noted comics painter Alex Ross and features bystanders looking up at Ultraman. Now, this was used as the main promotional image for the series. If uh, you've been following Ultraman at all over the last couple of years here in the States, you have seen this image. Uh, The oversized first issue had multiple features, all of which we will cover separately for the interest of clarity. Our main feature is titled simply The Rise of Ultraman. 
Our writers are Kyle Higgins and Matt Groom. Higgins is best known to Kaiju fans for writing Mighty Morphin Power Rangers over at Boom. We mentioned that Boom had the Power Rangers license. And he also is um, one of the writers on, or one of the creators on, I should say, uh, the Super Sentai style series Radiant Black over at Image, which I've heard really good things about. And actually the first, uh, the volume one trade paperback is in previews this month as well. So we might cover that in the future. Um, Higgins also has written superhero stuff with the big two. He had a pretty lengthy run on Nightwing over at DC Comics. Uh, Matt Groom, best known as the creator of the Image Comics sci-fi series Self Made, but he does have a credit on the uh, Power Rangers anniversary special from Boom as well. So he has done some uh, uh, some Tokusatsu related stuff as well. Our artist is Francesco Mana. Uh, Mana is an Italian artist. A wide variety of credits, including Fantastic Four, Vampirella, Crossed, Old Man Logan, Supermassive, and most crucial and most familiar to me. Tony Stark Iron Man, which was the Dan Slott Iron Man series from a couple of years back. And I do remember his art from that. And uh, very appropriate artist for this series, as we will discuss. The color art is done by, uh, and I'm, I'm apologizing right now because I'm going to mess this name up, Espen Grundertjern. Grundertjern. I'm really apologizing for that. Uh, that's a name I had not seen before. And I'm just going to be frank, I probably would have remembered that name. But looking over uh, their work, they've done a lot of color work for Capcom licensed books over at Udon, including a whole lot of Street Fighter books. So very colorful stuff. So again, probably a good choice for this setup. So our story starts in 1966 when Agent Moraboshi of the USP encounters a massive red orb from outer space, which smashes into his VTOL in midair. Moraboshi is thought dead, but is actually absorbed into the orb. Jumping forward to 2020, where the USP is still operating, protecting an unaware world from the threat of kaiju, other dimensional monsters which cross over into our world. Cadet Fuji is repairing a K-Ray, the USP's main anti-kaiju weapon, but finds herself pulled into a field mission under the command of Captain Muramatsu. The USP team is investigating strange occurrences at a slaughterhouse, where they are attacked by the monster Telesidon, only to be saved by Shin Hayata, Fuji's friend who did not make it into the USP. Hayata was able to locate Telesidon using a kaiju tracker, a device that he and Fuji had worked on together previously. Muramatsu is not pleased with Hayata confiscating the tracker. That night, as Fuji and Hayata are eating dinner, they discuss the secretive nature of USP when Fuji gets a call from Muramatsu. Without a car, Hayata has to drive Fuji to the country to answer the call, where the trio finds a giant red orb, seemingly identical to the one from 1966. When a giant being of light emerges from the orb, Muramatsu screams at Hayata to open fire, which he does. But instead of retaliating, the giant pulls Hayata into himself, to the shock of Fuji and Muramatsu. Now, one of the questions I had about this series in the run-up to this issue's release was just how much Marvel was going to update or change the classic Ultraman story. And there are definitely some changes here. Now, the biggest change for me is the recasting of the Science Patrol, now called the USP instead of SSSP, as a secretive, shadowy organization, as opposed to the public organization we know from the show. Now, this is demonstrated very clearly artistically in the caption boxes, which are actually redacted to remove certain details. So, uh, you know, we'll get a, a caption box to tell us where something is and the location, the exact location will be blacked out with a black marker. 
it's uh, very creative. That turn made me smile for sure. Similarly, the familiar characters are now recast. You know, straight-laced Hayata is now a rebel slash screw-up. You know, Fuji is now a techie. And Captain Muramatsu is a jerk. Not to mention seemingly closer in age to Hayata and Fuji, whereas he was clearly older on the show. I'm not opposed to these changes. It is an adaptation, but it does reframe the concept in a different light, which will, I think, play better with some readers than it will with others. The issue starts off really nicely with the mysterious prologue. Now, non-Ultra fans will see it simply as a prologue, exactly what it is. But if you're an Ultra fan, you'll immediately have your ears perked up because, you know, the name Moraboshi in 1966 is what we might call, you know, air quotes up to the mic, wrong. Because Dan Moraboshi didn't appear in 1966. And the use of the red capsule, now again, that doesn't mean anything specific to non-fans, but to existing fans, we know the significance of the idea of Ultraman coming to Earth in, in the capsule. The rest of the story moves along about how you would expect, but it's very slow-paced, very decompressed, uh, very typical for Marvel comics, especially in today's day and age. But this is very atypical for Ultraman, which normally is a very fast-paced sort of property. Uh, the art by Mana is clean, a little bit of a stylized touch. It's very energetic. The characters are all very clearly defined. Um, he does facial features really well, which is something I've been paying more attention to in recent years. You can blame that completely on Dave Sim and his uh, book Glamourpus. Uh, the Daikaiju elements we see, namely Telesidon and the Giant of Light at the end, they're also done very nicely. The only kind of odd thing to me is Telesidon's size. He appears inside a warehouse, really a slaughterhouse, looking to be maybe 15 to 20 feet tall instead of the you know truly giant size we would normally expect. Now, this is an intentional choice as part of the story, as we'll see. But at the same time, seeing a classic Ultra Kaiju at a smaller size like this is a little odd at first, I must admit. Especially somebody like Telesidon, who's always been a giant. Now, Mana also does a good job with the technology we get to see here. The USP VTOLs are very sharply rendered, and the USP weapons look believable, but still fantastical and science fiction-y. That's always kind of my, um, you know, uh, criteria with, with a science fiction weapon. Does it look believable as a weapon? And okay, then I'm willing, usually willing to buy it. Overall, it's a very solid first installment in the series. But I have to be fair and admit that I have some misgivings here in the depiction of the shadowy USP and the decompressed storytelling pace. All told, though, this is a strong launch and beginning to our main story. Our first backup feature is called Ultra Q. Our writers are Higgins and Groom again, and our artist is Michael Cho, a prolific and award-winning artist, worked on way too many projects for me to list here, uh, but very well known for his retro throwback style. Uh, in his art, which is a point I will revisit in a moment. And our story goes a little something like this. In Paris in 1954, uh, Q agents Ichino Tani and Captain Kato are tracking a kaiju, but it looks like someone else is also on the case as they find gas traps set by others. Eventually, they are attacked by the monster Bemular, but Captain Kato drives him into the river. After Bemular escapes, the Q agents meet Commander Ansel Agent Morheim and Agent Dequay of the Expedition Scientifique Nationale. The two teams retire to exchange notes, but Agent Morheim goes off on her own. She communicates with a mysterious hologram, but Agent Dequay comes looking for her. Morheim blasts Dequay with a beam from her eyes, saying the humans must never know the truth of their world. 
For a little backup strip, this story has a lot going on in its 10 pages. We get a fast-paced story with some monster action, a nice twisty cliffhanger, and even meet a character from the main story, which is a Chinotani, who is the commander of the USP by 2020 in the main feature. The art is the best aspect, however, done in shades of black, white, and gray to emulate the black and white of the Ultra Q TV series. Cho is perfectly suited to this sort of throwback story, makes the pages really shine. Plus, you know, it features Bemular, my favorite Ultra Kaiju, so I'm probably more prone to enjoying it. Very cool little backup feature. I really dug this one. Uh, I remember my friend Adam had mentioned this to me because he got the issue before I did. said, hey, there's an Ultra Q backup, and it's in black and white. I was like, oh, that is too cool. So, Now, the other backup feature is uh, three one-page gag strips, which are called Kaiju Steps. These are written by Higgins and Groom, and the art is by Guri Hiru, which is a two-woman Japanese art team consisting of Chifuyu Sasake and Naoko Kawano who have done work primarily for Marvel here in the West. Uh, the main one I, I, that I saw in their, uh, in their history was the Thor and Loki Double Trouble miniseries. I remember that getting a lot of hype and a lot of people talking about that one. Uh, and, and they have a very um, distinct Eastern style of art, which I think is, is very cartoonish and very well suited to this sort of thing. Now, these uh, strips are ostensibly produced by USP's People and Culture Division, and these are PSAs hosted by a cartoon version of Pigmon and, I guess, a cartoon USP cadet named Pierre. Uh, the PSAs explain the safe handling of a K-Ray, the nature of Kaiju, and how Kaiju warp reality when they emerge into our dimension. These are very, very cute. Pigmon is clearly modeled on his Kaiju Step iteration, if you're familiar with the web series Kaiju Step. And they do give a little insight again into this shadowy USP that Higgins and Groom are working. Now, for what it's worth, the explanation of the name, Kaiju Steps, is that these are the proper steps to take to be a good USP agent, rather than the first steps, which is referred to in the actual title, Kaiju Step. That's what you know, the step means there. Still, I, you can't argue with Kawhi, and it was great to see, you know, uh, like Kaiju Step Pigmon in this. And I, I do like Kaiju Step. I wish they would subtitle it in English, but I watch it in Japanese, and it's just adorable. My, my younger daughter thinks that they are super cute as well. I hope they bring back some more Kaiju Step pretty soon. <laughs> now, the last item in the issue is a two-page splash pinup entitled Things to Come, which teases... Ultraman battling Bemular, Ultraman and Ultra 7 grappling, and even the Ultra Brothers. Uh, now, this piece is by renowned artist Ed McGinnis, with Grundet Jern doing the colors again. Uh, McGinnis, of course, very well known for his Superman Batman work. That's probably, say, it's probably his most popular um, work doing that series, but he's done a lot of work with Deadpool and Hulk as well. Uh, McGinnis, actually, one of my favorite Hulk artists of all time, truth be told. Uh, all I can say about this spread is, hot dang, that would make an incredible poster. Are you listening, Marvel? I know, I know you guys follow my podcast and try and stay ahead of the trends, but you know, hey, that'd make a great poster. Just putting it out there. All in all, this is a jam-packed first issue between the the two feature strips. <clears throat> excuse me, the three gag strips and the pinup. You know, I'm not 100% sold on the whole sneaky shadow agency USP, but as a single comic. There is a lot to like here. I have to say that this is a winning debut for Marvel and Subaraya right out of the gate. 
Rise of Ultraman number two was released on October 7th, 2020 from Marvel Comics. This issue shipped with only three different covers, but the main cover was by uh, Jorge Molina. It's a collage showing Ultraman, Fuji, Hayata, a USP VTOL, and the monster Gomera. Uh, it's a nice pinup style image, sort of like a 1980s movie poster. Would make a good uh, poster as well, Marvel, if you're listening, uh, for sure. Creative team is unchanged from the first issue, but of note is that there are no backup features of any kind in this issue. We only get the main story, and that story goes a little something like this. While the USP has erected a barricade around the merged Giant of Light and Shin Hayata to investigate, Hayata finds himself communicating with the giant, reliving his memories, such as finding a kaiju with Fuji when they were kids, and learning about the giant, including the fact that he is dying. Meanwhile, Fuji and Muramatsu are investigating where the shot which hit the red orb was fired from. They find a hidden USP facility, disable the guard, and make their way inside. Meanwhile, the Giant of Light shows Hayata the nature of kaiju, interdimensional monsters drawn to the darkness of the soul, along with the history of his race, called Ultra by some. The Ultra help races push back kaiju invasions, either by helping the race evolve or by merging with and controlling another being's body. And Earth is just such a planet, since the giant believes humans are incapable of evolving beyond their violent nature, as evidenced by the killing of his brother in 1966. Hayata says that it was Agent Dan Moraboshi who was killed by the giant, as both sides lost in that encounter. Fuji and Muramatsu find the weapon which evidently shot down the giant's orb, which appears to be alien technology. Using Fuji's kaiju energy tracker, they are able to find similar alien technology readings when they are suddenly attacked from the air by a USB VTOL. Muramatsu tells Fuji to go on while he faces down the VTOL, and Fuji tracks the energy to the country home of one Dr. Yamamoto, who clearly knows that the USP is up to something, and something is work lurking inside his home as well. Hayata and the giant search each other's minds, and neither is able to find any trace of deceit. Hayata is able to convince the giant of the worth of humanity, asking for a chance to make amends for the actions of his people in the past. The giant agrees, handing Hayata a device, saying that Hayata will be in control when Ultra and Man become one. Issue 2 features some of the same elements as Issue 1, namely USP as the bad guys, with them firing on Fuji and Muramatsu, and Yamamoto asking what new evil the USP has been up to. But the issue-long conversation between Hayata and Ultraman, who is not named here, really struck a chord with me. This back and forth gets to the nature of what an Ultra is, and what a human is, and why Hayata is the right person to have this power. The explanation of the kaiju neatly sidesteps having to give them all different origins, like in the original series, but it also hints at some mysterious other power which may be pulling the strings. Uh, go ahead and put a pin in that, as we don't get any more information on that front. The information that we do get about Dan Moraboshi in Ultra 7 pays off the prologue from the last issue, and similar to that issue, the clear connection between Dan and Ultra 7 is a big shout-out for longtime fans, but only normal plot development for newer fans. I also like the idea of the Giants of Light being called Ultra, as this is a convenient way to introduce the word to the story and the mythos. You know, the word kind of comes out of nowhere in Japan, but eh, that's okay. Art is the same, uh, with Mana handling the chores again, slick and modern, touch of style, makes it very pleasing to the eye. 
Some great metaphysical stuff here with Hayata and Ultraman in the inner light helps bring some uh, dynamism to what is, at its core, just two characters talking. We also get a nice action sequence with Hayata and Fuji as kids being chased by the monster Aboris, which was pretty neat. No sign of Barilla, however. I mean, all told, uh, you know, there, there's I, there's some aspects of this I like, but there's some aspects of this I, I don't like. I really like, like I said, the conversations between uh, Hayata and Ultraman. I think that really does a good job of, uh, you know, demonstrating one of the strengths of the characters of the Ultra series and some of the, the themes that have been present there from the beginning. But, uh, you know, the USP firing on their own people and being an evil organization, I'm just predisposed to not like that that much. Now, I recognize that as my personal bias. I freely admit that. Still, this is my take on the comic, and that's my feeling. Now, all things being equal, I am on board with the series, now primarily because of the great characterization of Hayata and Ultraman and the, the really nice artwork, but I still have my reservations as we finish issue two. Rise of Ultraman number three was released on November 4th, 2020 from Marvel Comics. Issue again shipped with three different covers, with the main cover again by Jorge Molina. The cover shows a human-sized Ultraman surrounded by USP agents who all have their sidearms pointed at our hero. Goes with the theme of the series so far, so can't complain too much. Not a bad image, but admittedly the least of the main covers up to this point. Our creative team is unchanged from the previous issues, and once again, no backups. And our story for issue 3 goes a little something like this. Hayata awakens at USP to find director Ichinotani and specialist Ide looking down on him. Hayata tries to escape, but discovers that he is not a prisoner, but was simply being medically observed. As Ichinotani gets Hayata caught up on the events that he missed, Ultraman speaks to Hayata internally, advising him not to trust Ichinotani. Hayata speaks to Muramatsu, who is being held as an accomplice to Fuji's actions. Muramatsu initially will not disclose where Fuji went, but Hayata convinces him by saying that he is merely trying to help his friend. Meanwhile, at Dr. Yamamoto's house, Fuji is trying to get information from the doctor who rants about the USP. The meeting is cut short by the emergence of the monster Naranga. Back at USP, Hayata reveals to Ichinotani that he knows Fuji's location, then makes a deal with the director. Hayata will tell him everything he knows about the alien after he brings Fuji back safely. Ichinotani agrees with one caveat that he accompanies Hayata to the field. At Dr. Yamamoto's house, Hayata leaves the director in the VTOL and investigates. Ultraman advises Hayata to not use the K-Ray until it is understood more, instead offering the use of the Beta Capsule to tap into his power. Ultraman also warns that the connection between himself and Hayata is limited, and at some point will break. Inside the house, Hayata is confronted by Yamamoto, still ranting about the USP, and that there are multiple kaiju distorting reality at the house. Naranga pops up beyond Hayata, who uses the Beta Capsule to change into Ultraman. Ultraman and Fuji hold the multiple Narangas at bay, until Ultraman is able to use his Specium Beam attack to vanquish the Kaiju. Yamamoto is impressed, but then demands that Hayata get him out of the still Kaiju-infested area, promising to reveal everything he knows about the USP, 1966, and Dan Moroboshi. Hayata is hesitant to betray the USP when they just helped him get Fuji, so Yamamoto forces the issue by blasting Fuji with the K-Ray. Well, here in issue number three, this story finally gets into gear. Halfway through the issue, and thus approximately halfway through the series, we finally see Hayata transform into Ultraman. It is interesting that Ultraman is human-sized here, like the similarly smaller monsters. 
This immediately made me think of Ultra 7, who of course would operate at human size sometimes. It is, again, a change to the Ultraman mythos, but that is the order of the day in this series. Ultraman's explanation of the bond between himself and Hayata being the source of their power, and that every time the power is used, the total amount drops, is well done. Uh, this provides us with a strong rationale for the three-minute limit, although this specific limit is not mentioned in this issue. It's shown more uh, like a power meter on your cell phone dropping by percentage points. The battle against the multiple Narangas is only a few pages long, but it is very well executed and drawn. We get a nice full-page splash hero shot of Ultraman when he finally transforms, and we get to see Fuji taking part in the battle as well, blasting a Naranga with her sidearm. She also advises Ultraman to keep his eye on them, or they will turn invisible, a nice callback to Naranga's powers uh, from the series. The non-action scenes are less interesting, but they do a nice job of fleshing out Ichinotani and Muramatsu. The director may keep plenty of secrets, but he is willing to trust Hayata and work with him to get the answers that he needs. Muramatsu, he refuses to divulge Fuji's location to the USP, but will tell Hayata. So even the very loyal USP agent has his limits that he's willing to trust them, you know, because so clearly he knows, I guess getting fired on by them is going to, you know, change your willingness to work with them. It's also nice to meet Ide, if only for a couple of pages here, serves as a mild type of comic relief. Uh, I also dig Ide's beard in this, as opposed to the clean-shaven look he sported back in the TV series. Of course, that was the 1960s. Facial hair was a little less accepted in Japanese society back then. Dr. Yamamoto doesn't really do much for me, though, I have to admit. He rants about how evil the USP is and how much he knows for most of the issue. I get that USP is this big, bad, secret organization. Yamamoto comes off as a lunatic more than anything else. Shooting Fuji doesn't really help his case for me as a reader. Speaking of which, man, what a cliffhanger. I can legitimately say I was pretty floored the first time I read it. It caps a good issue, given that this is the middle of a five-issue mini, and so we've got to kind of get things moving forward. The action steps up. Uh, we get to see our titular hero in action. I can't overstate how cool that is to finally see Ultraman in action. Uh, so things have seemingly started cooking now. We are really moving. Which brings us to Rise of Ultraman number 4, which was released on December 9th, 2020 from Marvel Comics. Issue once more, shipped with three different covers, with the main cover once more by Jorge Molina. This cover shows Hayata standing back-to-back -back with Ultraman, with Hayata in Japan and Ultraman in the Land of Light. Another nice thematic cover, this one illustrating the connection between Hayata and Ultraman. Fitting, considering the events of the last issue where they finally transformed. I like this one. Not a particularly exciting cover, but I still think it's well done. The creative team is once more unchanged from the previous issues, and again, uh, is only our main feature, no backups. So Fuji finds herself in a strange place, which looks like the outside of Yamamoto's home, but is clearly somewhere else entirely. She doesn't have time to wonder about it for too long, however, as she is menaced by another kaiju. Back on Earth, Hayata is furious with Yamamoto, but the doctor explains that he did not kill Fuji. He simply sent her someplace else to force Hayata to help him. Unable to transform back into Ultraman for the moment, the two arm themselves and battle through the remaining Narangas to the VTOL, where director Ichinotani is not thrilled to see Yamamoto. Ichinotani and Yamamoto argue, but Hayata is able to get the two of them to explain the history of the USP and Dan Moroboshi. No one knows what really happened to Dan, but the alien technology inside of the orb became the basis of the USP's equipment. This includes the K-Ray, 
which transports whatever it touches to another dimension, which the USP has dubbed the Kaiju Vault. By the 1980s, Yamamoto determined that the vault was becoming overfilled, but the USP took no action. And at some point, the vault will become too full and explode, devastating the Earth and unleashing all the kaiju inside. Ultraman advises Hayata that this is a dire situation. The vault is actually limbo, an interdimensional waypoint between the universe as we know it and the kaiju graveyard. The Ultras experimented with sending kaiju to limbo, but the kaiju always returned. Ichinotani and Yamamoto argue more, but Hayata cuts to the point. Fuji is now trapped there too. Hayata says he will go in there to find her. He's not interested in the personal grudges between the two older men. Yamamoto shoots Hayata with the K-Ray and our hero is transported to Limbo. Transforming to Ultraman, he quickly finds Fuji being menaced by Kaiju, including the previously K-Rayed Telesodon. Ultraman gets Fuji out of harm's way, but more Kaiju, including the giants Skydon and Gomera, arrive on the scene. Ultraman uses a K-Ray to portal himself and Fuji back to Earth. The only problem? They had a hitchhiker, the giant Kaiju Bemular. Finally, before the series ends in the next issue, the story is laid bare. All that USP did with the alien technology, how much they have put the world in jeopardy, and how still no one quite seems to know what happened to Dan Moriboshi. We learned the deal with the K-Ray, we're introduced to the Kaiju Vault, uh, all of it is out here. The hubris of the USP is the main story driver, as the super duper shadow organization is completely exposed for what they have done. Now that said, the middle of this issue, while very informative with all the info dump, it's also kind of redundant. Ichinotani and Yamamoto argue back and forth a couple of different times, with Hayata having to come in and settle them down. It almost feels like filler as we read into the final issue. It's like, we got to fill 22 pages here, and we have to do this info dump, but we don't have quite enough, so let's have them argue for a few more pages. Artistically, I really like the depiction of Limbo, where the rules of physics don't seem to apply. This is a great use of the comics medium uh, to portray something which would be difficult to execute in tokusatsu, which is actually a first for this series. And we've talked about this before. You can do things in comics that are dang near impossible to do in live action or at least very costly. You can do them very cheaply in comics. We talked about that, I remember, on Godzilla and Hell. We kind of made that point. Now, of course, Fuji, who's been shown to be a techie, is now an action girl in Limbo because, you know, American comics. But that's okay. I don't mind. Fuji is cool, and she's still trained, even if only at the cadet level, so she can handle herself. It's also a great excuse to get us some more kaiju here as cameos, including the truly massive Skydon, who is actually coming out of the ground with uh, the earth clinging to him and part of a pier as uh, he chases our heroes. And Gomera, always popular Gomera, he makes an appearance in the background as well. So very cool to see them. The cliffhanger here is, to me, just as good as the previous one, if not a bit more obvious, because, you know, let's face it, at some point Ultraman has to fight a giant monster. Now, I, of course, am somewhat biased here because it is Bemular, as I said, my favorite Ultra Kaiju. So naturally, I will be very jazzed to see him, giant, uh, you know, in on Earth. I also have to say that this does tie back to that Ultra Q story from the first issue, where Bemular has been around and active for quite a while. So if he was eventually K-Raid into Limbo back in the 50s or 60s, he would be quite giant by this point. You know, that was, uh, you know, more than 50 years ago. So he's had time to grow and grow. So 
you know, that's that's a pretty cool callback because we hadn't really seen anything from that Ultra Q series until this point. Uh, Ultra Q strip, I should say. Now, again, naturally, as an Ultra fan, this makes me very eager to see Ultraman and Bemular tangle. I mean, that's what we're here for, right? Uh, again, all told, this issue has a lot of talking to get you set up for that fin- finale. That's a lot of talking. Uh, there's some great monster cameos. Heck of a cliffhanger to get the reader excited. Uh, if I'm being honest, it's a bit of a letdown from issue three. But by the same token, I fully admit this does a very good job of setting up the finale as we barrel on towards the final issue. And that final issue is The Rise of Ultraman number five, which was released on January 9th, 2021 from Marvel Comics. The issue, once again, with shipped with three different covers with the main cover, you guessed it, by Jorge Molina. This cover shows Ultraman battling Bemular in Tokyo Harbor at night, with lightning crashing behind them. Fantastic action cover, hitting right at the heart of both the issue itself, as set up previously, but also the property in general, and continuing the trend would make one hell of a poster. Creative team, once again, unchanged from the previous issues. And our story goes like this. Growing to giant size, Ultraman engages Bemular in the harbor, and the two giants exchange massive blows. With Fuji in his comms giving him intel, Ultraman keeps fighting despite his energy level dropping much faster at this giant size. Things get more complicated when Dr. Yamamoto, having commandeered the VTOL, attacks him, reasoning that Bemular attacking Tokyo will be the catalyst to expose the USP and force him to change. Hayata, speaking through Ultraman, is able to convince Yamamoto that forgiveness, not anger, is the best path. This gives Ultraman the opening he needs. Tangling Bemular up in the cables from a suspension bridge, he unleashes his specium beam, seemingly disintegrating Bemular. In the aftermath, Ichinotani grants Hayata a spot in the USP. That night at dinner, Hayata and Fuji discuss Hayata's other form, saying he needs a name. Hayata suggests Ultraman being the combination of Ultra and Man. They also discuss what Hayata feels is the next step, opening the Kaiju Vault. Ichinotani is understandably hesitant, but Hayata argues that opening it in a controlled way will be safer, scattering the Kaiju to unpopulated areas and imprinting Ultraman on them, making him the target rather than humanity at large. Ichinotani finally agrees and Ultraman opens the vault, creating a brave new world. Later, in New Zealand, a disheveled man staggers into a convenience store. He tells the clerk that he needs help. His name is Dan Moraboshi, and he doesn't know where he is. To be continued. Okay, lots of action here as we finally, finally, get some legit Ultraman stuff. The fight between Ultraman and Bemular is the majority of the issue, and it is not shortchanged in any way. Mana does a really great job depicting the way that both Ultraman and Bemular fight, driving home the difference between Giant and Kaiju. Very, very dynamic with a lot of martial arts style attacks from Ultraman, and I liked him using the environment, such as the aforementioned suspension cables off the bridge. And of course the giant specium beam for the finish, Bemular's defeat. It's a series of four panels over two pages with the panels getting bigger and bigger, and it is a wonderful climax to the fight. Now the whole bit with Yamamoto in the middle, it's sort of half-baked, and if I'm going to be honest, it's irritating. At this point, I want to see Ultraman shine, not have Yamamoto call him boy again like he's the tall man from Phantasm and rail against the USP some more. But if I'm being fair, it doesn't last long, and it does not detract really from the battle. I also like now that the battle itself is the impetus for the USP to seemingly become more open and transparent. 
Everyone in Tokyo saw Ultraman and Demular fighting. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle now. The denouement, with Ultraman uh, getting a name and the kaiju vault being opened, is an interesting contrast. Now, the giant being named is a cute explanation, and it's set up way back in issue 2 when Hayata and uh, Ultraman are talking in the inner light, so I'm down with that. Um, now, of course, this does raise the question that we don't know how the USP handled naming the kaiju, but let's not worry about that, all right? Now, the opening of the vault does make sense from both a narrative and story engine standpoint. Narratively, the vault is so overloaded that it's unstable, so blowing it in a controlled manner is safer. And from a story engine, well, now there are lots of kaiju in the world for Ultraman to fight. I very much suspected that this ending was setting up an ongoing, or at least a series of miniseries when I first read it. And, you know, as we know, there have been uh, another series after this with a third one announced, so it felt good to be right, I must admit. The epilogue twist, where Dan Moraboshi is back, was not really a surprise. If the agent that was lost had not been named Dan Moraboshi, you know, one of the most popular and beloved characters in the entire franchise, then his return might have been more shocking. But there's no way they were going to leave Ultra 7 off the table if they can use him, and calling him Dan Moraboshi means we're going to get Ultra 7. And overall, Rise of Ultraman, it's an uneven series. It's definitely a new and updated approach to Ultraman, but with a lot of modern Western twists, to which, you know, I was not always on board with. I enjoyed it, and I certainly enjoyed it enough to buy the follow-up Trials of Ultraman. But again, I have to say that I wanted something more traditional than what I got. It would not be fair if I didn't say that the series does some new, creative, and surprising stuff with the license, which I enjoyed. And I was certainly intrigued when I finished reading the series about the what the you know trials were going to be. Uh, but in my honest estimation, I remain in the middle when it comes to the first Marvel Ultraman series. It's worth checking out for sure, but be aware of what you're getting into. Don't expect Subaraya Ultraman. Expect Marvel Ultraman. I think if you go in with that mindset, I think you'll be you'll be uh, pleased with what you read. Now, if you want to read The Rise of Ultraman, you can find it in trade paperback form, collecting all five issues at your LCS or an online dealer such as Amazon. You can also buy the whole series on Comixology if you prefer to go digital. Uh, I believe it is on Marvel Unlimited if you belong to that service. I'm not 100% sure. I don't actually know anyone who is on Marvel Unlimited, so I can't confirm that. Uh, but it's out there, re very readily available at this point. Uh, Marvel, uh, you know, did a lot of, uh, a fair amount of advertising and promotion for this. You know, it's a, kind of a big deal, licensing with Subaraya. So you can certainly find it if you would like to check it out. So I now throw it to you, the listeners. What did you think? Did any of you read Rise of Ultraman? Did you like it? Are you on board with the kind of uh, modernist, you know, 21st century Western take on Ultraman? Or were you more wishing for something more traditional? Write in and let me know. We can talk about it here on the show, Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. All right, that's all I've got for the Rise of Ultraman. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren of the Rad Adventures Network. We're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds, including adventures, mysteries, science fiction, and fantasy. Please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics. Trekker Talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. It's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future. Oh. 
Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion of Superheroes. Sensational Sluice, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books. And Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories. Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it is time for a little bit of listener feedback. And if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. And of course, you can also get in touch with me on social media. You can find me on Facebook or Twitter and YouTube, and all that stuff will be in the outro to the show. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Our first email comes from Jack Bond, a longtime listener. And Jack Bond writes, thanks. I bought a book, Kong, King of Skull Island, with illustrations by Joe DeVito around 2005. If I did see the rewrite of the original novelization, I would have taken it for a straight-up reprinting. ISFDB.org says a lot of publishers came out with a copy around 2005 for some reason. I have never seen any of the other items on their website, so I never knew it was becoming its own microverse. At least there isn't a huge backlog of material. Signed, Jack. And this is uh, in response to the uh, the Kong of Skull Island comic that we did back uh, in October for Horror Comics Month. And yeah, there's not a whole lot of it. There, there was a lot of that uh, stuff, that Skull Island, King of Skull Island stuff that was put out by DeVito and his crew. But yeah, there's not a whole lot of stuff. It's not some huge expanded universe. So if you're interested in it, I think you definitely can track some of it down. And, uh, you know, if you do, let us know what you think, Jack. I'm eager to hear because I haven't read a lot of that stuff. I've mostly just read the comics. So uh, thank you very much for writing in, Jack. And our next email is entitled, This is not the Mechagodzilla you are looking for. And it comes from Nathan Marchand, host of the Monster Island Film Vault and uh, guest on this show uh, before. And I've been a guest on his show, so it all goes full circle here. And Nathan writes, Hey Luke, I just heard your episode on Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla with your brother Jason. It was fun and it's uh, and insightful. I may have to review it when I eventually cover it as part of my Godzilla redo subseries on the Monster Island Film Vault. Hearing that Jason grew up watching Terra of Mechagodzilla more than this inspired me to share a similar but slightly different story of my own. Terror was my first Godzilla film. I saw it on cable TV while visiting my grandmother. Sadly, I missed the first half, but it was enough to give me the kaiju fandom fever. I made it my quest to find more of these films, but I specifically wanted to find Terror so I could see the rest of it. I came across a copy of Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla on a Kmart shelf, and I bought it on impulse. I was too young in my fandom to know that there were two Showa Mechagodzilla films. I don't know how long it took me before I figured out it was a different movie, but I was a ball of mixed up teenage emotions. On the one hand, I was excited to discover a new Godzilla film. On the other hand, I was sad that I didn't find terror. It's kind of like love. You never forget your first crush and you'll never forget your first G film. 
Uh, yeah, I can see that. Mine was Godzilla King of the Monsters. So <laughs> if you're going to start, start right at the beginning, I always say, right? Uh, Nathan says, anyway, time to get back to my film curating here on Monster Island. Keep them stomping. Nathan Marchand, hosting curator of the Monster Island Film Vault, co-host of the Henshin Men podcast, co-host of the brand new Power Trip podcast. Nathan, thank you very much for writing in. Yeah, it, it's always weird that there are two Mechagodzillas and they're back-to-back, and it always seems like people either knew one or the other. You know, it was rare that I knew anyone that had, as a kid, knew them both well, and that Jay and I fell on the terror side and you fell on the uh, 70, uh, you know, versus side. It's just, it's again, it's I've seen that happen time and again, and it's so interesting the way that that goes. And, you know, it's it's what Godzilla films, because they were sometimes piecemeal, what they whether they were available or not here in the U.S., um, you know, it was the ones that you had were the ones that you were familiar with. And then you might have seen in a book or a magazine, like a Famous Monsters or something, other ones, and you always were trying to track them down. But, you know, people nowadays, kids especially, they just expect, oh, I can watch any of these anytime I want. It's like, that was not the case. That was totally not the case. So you're right. You never forget your first one. Nathan, thank you very much for writing in. And uh, please go check out his shows. Uh, some some really great stuff covering uh, monsters and henshin heroes and now Power Rangers with the new Power Trip podcast, which just started this month as I'm recording this. I want to thank everyone for all their likes, shares, and retweets on Facebook and Twitter. Quite a lot. It's been a while since we've done them, so the list is quite large. We're not going to get into all of that, but rest assured, we will continue to to support everyone who supports us on social media, and it is very much appreciated. As I've said many times, a podcast is a labor of love. You know, uh, we're not getting paid to do this. Anything that, uh, anytime we're spent devoted to this, is time that we have to carve out of, you know, uh, life and family and jobs in order to do it. So we really appreciate, I really much appreciate all the support and, uh, and backup on social media. And as always, we must forever be looking forward, even as, as a show, we generally look backwards, but we must always also look forward. And what is coming next? Well, next time, we are going to be taking a look at a very, very modern uh, uh, kaiju movie. You know, we're doing some modern stuff here at the Cox, do some modern kaiju movie. We're going to be taking a look at the film Rampage from 2018, starring, uh, you know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. You know, you finally got a, a human star who is just as big as any of the monsters, perhaps, based on the classic Midway video game Rampage, which became a series of uh, games after a while. A uh, very favorite of mine from childhood, playing on the uh, Master System, the Sega Master System. Uh, so we're going to be taking a look at that. Uh, we'll also have any new news or information on, uh, you know, any of the new stuff that's coming out, you know, whether it's uh, the this MonsterVerse series that's just being broken, or uh, if we get anything new on Godzilla vs. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. You know, we've got a lot of stuff coming up uh, this year. We're supposed to be getting the next season of Ultraman on Netflix. We're supposed to be getting the back half of uh, Pacific Rim the Black. So lots of cool giant monster stuff coming down the pike here in 2022. So we will keep you up to date on anything new we find out. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode talking about Marvel Comics, the rise of Ultraman. I hope you come back next time to talk about Rampage. Uh, I hope everybody is having a great start to their 2022 and that things continue to go well for everybody. Hope everybody stays safe and healthy out there. I'd like to take a moment just to say that of course, Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. If you are interested in giant monsters and the giant monster scene, you are free to interact with this show however you feel comfortable doing and all are welcome and uh 
just come on back next time for Rampage. This is all I've got. So until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name E-D-D. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod, downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.